I am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, part of the dynamic duo known as Julie and Lisa, who bring you our regular podcast. This is our speaker series edition where we borrow guests from the home group AA Solution Seekers online. Please enjoy. Excellent. All right. So AA Solution Seekers would like to welcome Frank from the KFTF in Austin, Texas, I believe, home group. And uh, I give it to you, Frank. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Frank. And I'm an alcoholic, so I need to start off with that. I need to let you know how I qualify to be here. Um, you know, I'm going to make a few remarks before I get started. The idea of talking for 45 minutes is a uh, is really a strange thing, because when I talk about this, usually I talk for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And the worry I have more than anything else is that what I say is important. What I say is something that other people can gain from. Um, it's really important for me not to take up airspace with me uh, falling in love with my own voice, which is something that all of us can do in meetings. So I'm going to ask my higher power to guide me through this Coincidentally, I had some notes that I had written down last night after realizing it was 45 minutes and I left them all in another room, which is in itself the best thing to do. So I can start this fresh from my own head and what's going on. And I'll start with my experience. My experience is no different from anyone else's in this room. I felt terminally unique from my birth as we all do in one fashion or another, because that's our ego. And I felt um, that uh, no one understood me or could connect with me. I never thought anyone loved me. I was always all this wool, poor, pretty, poor me stuff. It was all out there and it was no different from anyone else. I claim no uniqueness, although at the beginning of my life, that's all I thought I was, was unique. I thought I was special. I thought in my own way that the, somehow uh, the world was going to discover me. I remember as a, as a young person going to church, a young man actually at this point, listening to a pastor preach and saying to myself, well, I could do a better job than him. And that was really uh, where my ego went, that I could do a better job than most anybody out there. Uh, it wasn't true. I, uh, if I want to remember my earliest life, I never really had a relationship with my father uh, for multiple reasons, but I recognize now that he was doing the best he could, but still in all, I never had a relationship. So I had that empty spot in my heart that I kind of grew up with. Uh, I didn't kind of grow up with, I did grow up with. I'm not the kind of kid that I wasn't the kind of kid that when my father, you know, came up in the driveway from work and said, how you doing, Frankie, that I felt good to talk to him. First thought that I remember was probably about, I don't know, maybe eight years old. I was thinking to myself, what have I done wrong? So that's kind of a strange position to be in, in terms of a relationship with the father. But it was the truth and it was how I felt. And I grew up with that. Um... I came from an Italian-American family. We grew up in, uh, I, I was born in New York and grew up basically in California. Uh, stayed there till I was about in first in kindergarten and came to California just prior to that, that last year. 
and uh, and lived in uh, New York up to that point. So I'm kind of uh, a little bit of both in regard to my family background, because frankly, my parents are very New York, or were very New York. Um, so how it all started for me with alcohol was basically in high school, um, or even before high school, because I dabbled with other things too. And um, it just was uh, my my uh, company, my cousins and I. Um, and so by the time I was in high school, I, I was the guy that rather than go into the high school dance, would sit outside in the car with a friend and drink Underbird wine until I couldn't drive home. And uh, and that would be that would be the first indications that I was an alcoholic. Um, and then afterwards, uh, you know, I went into the army at some point, um, got involved in what was going on in the 70s in terms of uh, uh, drugs and things of that nature. And um, and then went in the army and it, it didn't stop because it was during the Vietnam War and everybody was, uh, was using or drinking or something just to get by. I wasn't in Vietnam, I was in Germany. The one thing that I, I understand though, and it's really important, is that that didn't make me an alcoholic. It didn't make me an alcoholic because I drank a lot. It didn't make me an alcoholic because I um, I went overseas because most people who go overseas and uh, and drink come back and they stay sober. They get a family and they stay sober and they live a normal life. But I really didn't. I, I didn't want to. Um, I had a deep hole inside of me, just like most everyone in this room, that we I was trying to fill with alcohol, that I was trying to compensate for what amounted to a very low self-esteem of myself. I was always afraid that if anybody really looked at me, they'd see who I really was and that the game would be over because that's all I was doing was playing a game. I was playing a game with myself. I was lying to myself. I was uh, lying to my friends in regard to who I was and what I believed and what I thought because I needed to keep my mask on. That's all there was. It was just a mask. It was just what I needed to keep on to keep going. Now, uh, I should say this is kind of interesting is that I uh, got married sometime after being in, uh, uh, getting out of the army and I relatively speaking stopped drinking. It worked for a while but not very long because I remember nights that I couldn't sleep and I would be out in my car and uh, on the driveway with a bottle of something or other, just uh, in the middle of the night drinking out there. And that's not what a normal person does. And I never could seem to stop doing that. I can remember in the middle of the night when, when I would uh, feel the way I did, I just couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop drinking. Um, but still, I never thought I was an alcoholic. I just thought I had problems. I just thought that um, I needed I needed alcohol as a medicine to keep me going. Um, and so that's how it went. It went for quite a few years, and then I eventually divorced my wife. It was they were really with irreconcilable differences. Something which now, honestly, I re I don't really regret divorcing, but I wish I would have had more. Um, personal courage, personal uh, self-esteem to try to work through it a little better. Um, it may not have worked ever. 
And I doubt if it would have because of the condition my ex-wife is in right now. But regardless of that, I felt um, I felt that I wished that I had been a bigger or better person than I was. Um, and I never felt that way, honestly, until I got into this program. Before, I just blamed the other person because that was the most comfortable way of me approaching things. Well, I can't live with this person because, because, because. But after being in the program and after really trying to work the steps to the best of my ability, I recognized my shortcomings and I recognized that it's part of the wreckage of my past. Um, during that same period of time that I got divorced, I, I got alienated from my kids because I need to I need to disclose to everybody here that I had a real temper because I felt that I was right. And I felt that my kids were a reflection of me. And I felt that they needed to be good. They needed to be the same way that my father treated me. And, uh, and I really actually growing uh, up as a father, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong particularly, except that I'd have moments and bouts of guilt because I realized I hurt the feelings of my son. But still, I, uh, I was emulating what my father had taught me or what I thought my father had taught me, although he really never intended to teach me that. So there I was after my divorce. My kids were teenagers at this point, and neither of them really were talking to me. Uh, and all I did was drink. All I did was drink. And I remember um, my son calling me up because he was either staying with his mother or, or living with a girlfriend at that time and saying, Daddy, you drunk? And um, and I would and I wouldn't say anything, but I would be thinking to myself, I've got to hold it together long enough to appear like I'm not. So I was one of those drinkers that liked to drink by myself. I didn't particularly mind drinking with other people, but I certainly enjoyed drinking by myself. It was just a, a good way of operating. So let me fast forward a little bit because I don't need to go through every detail in my life with regard to my experience. But I can tell you that about um, Six years ago, I looked up and I realized that I was totally, I totally isolated everybody and iced everybody out of my life. My children really didn't want to talk to me. My son that I had not been a good father to was tremendously angry with me, you know, and threatening and this and that and the other thing. Didn't want me around and it broke my heart. Because it's funny how things work. The person that I actually loved the most in my life was the one that I was hurting the most. And it just broke me up. My other son really just didn't want me around. My sisters, I have three sisters, basically kept me at arm's distance because they knew that uh, I had a temper. I told them what I wanted. I was very opinionated. And I made sure they understood what was right according to Frank. And I was broken. I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. I had stopped drinking, actually, coincidentally, about uh, four months earlier, and uh, and thought, you know, I can I I can stop drinking. And I was really running around for about nine months as a dry drunk. But my uh, emotional um, and I should mention that I got remarried, and I could look in the eyes of my wife, and uh, I could see that she had enough of me too. So it was a very lonely place to be, to be alone and be still with uh, still with somebody. 
I uh, so I digress. I, I what happened was is that I um, I couldn't go on. I was a dry drunk. I couldn't go on. I was at a point where I couldn't put one foot in front of the other. I just couldn't. I constantly contemplated suicide. I um, I didn't drink because I thought that was the noble thing to do. But not drinking was driving me to a, a different type of insanity. I can't really explain it. So I went to AA. I actually, I didn't go into AA. I went into Al-Anon because, of course, my son at this point was my problem, not me. And uh, I stayed in the Al-Anon program for about two and a half years uh, until I looked up one day and realized that I was the problem. And that just crippled me to the point of not existing anymore. It just, I just, it was more than I could bear. When I looked in my mirror and I saw who I was, it scared me. It scared me to my core. I knew who I was and I couldn't hide it from anybody anymore, even though I wanted to. I had lived this false reality, this false thinking of who I was and what I was all about. And it had caught up to me. So at some point, I went into the AA program. I sat in the, it was really kind of coincidental because I, the, the, uh, the place I was at, they had an Al-Anon program at seven and an AA program uh, meeting at, uh, at eight. So I decided to stay to the AA program. And I recognized at that point that the problem was me. All of this happened all pretty much in the same basic time frame. I knew that the problem was me, but I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't know what to do. I knew the 12 steps through the Al-Anon program, and I knew where I was deficient, but I never worked the 12 steps. I never um, applied them to my life. I was more concerned about my son and justification of myself. So I went in the room, introduced myself to the AA meeting, and someone quickly said they'd be my sponsor told me to do things, and I didn't want to do them. I didn't want to call him every day. I didn't want to open myself up to him. I didn't want to have anything to do with anybody else that was personal because it was dangerous. And I finally realized that everything that I had been doing was wrong. Everything that I had been trying was not working. And that if I didn't try a different way or, or a different approach, there was going to be no hope for me. So at that point, I looked up and I said, okay, I'll listen to you. I'll do what you want. I'll be what you want me to be, even though I didn't feel like that was me. So I started opening up and I, was, I stopped being nearly as argumentative as I was because that's what I was with my sponsor. It was, it was uh, and it was wearing him out. He would ask me a question and I would come back with another question because I was smarter than him or so I thought. But I gave that up. I gave it up, but I gave it up little by little. I didn't just wake up one day and give it up and say, okay, now I'm going to transform my life. I went through a lot of pain that first six months in sobriety in the program. An awful lot of pain. I remember waking up in the middle of the night with my hands clenched so angry at my son because I thought he had disrespected me, not able to sleep. It would happen night after night. And I learned through uh, practice 
what I needed to do. I didn't learn it from the big book initially. You know, in the big book where it talks about praying for someone for for what is it, two weeks or twenty one days? I'm not sure. I think it's I think it's two weeks. And uh, wish for them what you wish for yourself. I was doing that. And it was coming naturally because I needed to. I remember laying in bed, stretching out my arms in the middle of the night and saying, "I give you everything I am." because I was just beginning to find my higher power. There's nothing I can do or want to do. I just give up to you. Take my life today if you want. Let me go on if you want. I surrender. I I, I just let things be the way they are because I can't do anything about this. I was totally helpless. And so I would say for the first year in sobriety, I was like a baby just trying to figure out what was going to come next. What was going to come next? But I was sincere. I would I would sit out in the yard and meditate. I would um, I would do everything and anything I could in my mind to put my mind in a different place, because I figured that I had had, in my case, sixty five years of programming that had to be reprogrammed. And it was about like that. I had, like I said, I had been Al Anon before, but I had never really attempted to reprogram me. I never attempted to actually turn around and look at me, I was always more concerned with other people. I was always more concerned about pity poor me and what was going on in my life. And it was killing me. So I turned this page and I said, that wasn't going to be the case anymore. I wasn't going to live that way. I think for me, it was all those years of pain all those years of suffering emotionally that made me who I am today. And so for those people out there that are suffering and they feel like there's no end to it, there is an end to it. It's a clear end. But it's when you decide you want to put an end to it by giving up. I had to give up. I had to give up. There was no two ways about it. And it wasn't an easy process. It was a very, very gradual process. So let me describe that process a bit. The first step in Alcoholics Anonymous is recognizing I was powerless. And for me, it was very easy because I recognized that I was powerless over everything. I was powerless over my own thoughts because they would keep cropping into my head. And I still had problems with that. But recognizing I'm powerless is important. It was the most important thing. And I want to just mention really quickly about the 12 steps, and it's something that's really important, and I hope it, it resonates with you. The 12 steps are universal steps. The 12 steps are steps that apply to everyone. They apply to every situation. They apply to every addiction. And that's something I learned. And I also learned that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is a blueprint for those people suffering from alcoholism. It's a textbook. And that over the years, there have been many other textbooks written for other addictions too. And some of us in this room have multiple addictions. And some of us in this room are battling one addiction or another, whether it's uh, narcotics or something else. Regardless, we all have the same inner need to let go. Because if we don't let go, we never get better. So recognizing I was powerless took me a while. 
it was a gradual process. I'm looking back on it now, I think it was overnight, but being honest with myself, it wasn't even nearly overnight. It's something that's still going on. The second step, you know, believing that there was a power greater than myself, well, that was totally out of the question for me because I was God. I was that power. I, I ran with that power for as long as I possibly could. And so my way of, of working with that was I started to read. I started to either read or listen to books online. I probably have listened, listened to well more than I would even begin to want to imagine. And I still do. I tried to, I tr I had to find a concept that I could believe in. I had, and, and I'm not going to go into any of that because frankly, it doesn't matter. Everyone in this room has their own basis of belief and what they believe is a concept to believe. And that's perfectly fine. But for me, it was an evolution. And it started with the basic things. I, I believe in the air and, and I believe in the sky. I believe that I'm here. You know, I believe that there's a power that's guiding me. Uh, uh, and and I won't go any further into detail because, like I said, this is a, I'm treading in an area that people have to decide for themselves how they how they approach this. It's what's the beautiful part of this program. The beautiful part for me was the fact that I had the freedom to be myself. In my first marriage, I married to, I was married to an evangelical Christian with extremely dogmatic beliefs. And she wouldn't stand for anybody that didn't believe the way she believed. I remember at one point I was talking to her about how I felt feelings. And she looked at me and she said, get thee behind me, Satan. And of course, I didn't talk anymore about my feelings or what I thought. And But that was the relationship that I had with her uh, with regard to our marriage. Um, so I had, to, I had to whittle that out. But I did get there. I did get there, but it didn't happen overnight. Again, it took months. The third step, realizing that was a power out there that could relieve me from sanity. That was the one, that was the one thing that I thought for the longest time was the most important step that I could possibly take. And I hung on to that step. I thought, you know, if I know it, nothing else, I know that. That was the important thing. So my my journey through the steps, for like to a large extent, ended at that point. It was I knew there was a power greater than me. I knew that that power could uh, could uh, could help me if I turned my life over and I realized that I wasn't in charge anymore if I chose that path, and I did. I can talk about that now in a more recent tense, because that was past tense. The more recent tense is I still have to work on that. I have to work on that all the time because complacency is a terrible monster in my life. Complacency, not necessarily that I believe that I'm running the show anymore, but that I put my life on autopilot and I let my life be run by circumstances and by what's happening in front of me and I just stay conscious of me right now. I'm not intentionally trying to, to ace my higher power out of my life. But it happens. It happens because a, a decision is, needs to be made, and I don't necessarily seek my higher power first. 
So when I hear of Christians and I hear of people in this program, regardless of your religion, that seek their higher power at every moment, all the day long, should I do this? Should I do that? I think that's fantastic. And I try to do that. I try to emulate that. But I, to be perfectly candid with you, it's something that I work on. It's not something that just happens naturally. And so for those of you out there that think it happens naturally, fantastic. Great. But know there are people like me out there that are struggling with that, that are struggling to have a, a conscious connection with God all the time. I, I live in my head like so many of you do. I make decisions in my head that are split second. I live in the reality of right now. But sometimes that becomes a real problem. Because circumstances in life kinds of takes its takes its own turns. And I have to I have to stop. I have to think. I have to meditate on whatever it is that's happening. I have to ask my higher power what direction I need to go in, and then I need to move. And that's what I do. But I don't do it perfectly. I don't do it near perfectly. It's one of the things that really worries me when I speak in a meeting like this, because I don't want to ever give the impression that I'm there and I've done it and this is what you need to do. Because I'm just like you. I'm just trying the best I can to put one foot in front of the other and be thankful for every step. Thankful for every step. I wake up now and I think to myself, rather than this is going to be a terrible day or this is going to be a this day or that day, I think to myself how lucky I am to have this day. How fortunate I am, how grateful I am, whatever word you want to use, to be able to greet this day and most importantly, be the best person I can possibly be. Practice these principles at all my affairs. That's so important to me. It's what keeps me going. It's, it's what makes things happen for me. What I got to making a fearless and thorough moral, uh, moral inventory of myself, at first it was very simple. I just thought I was the problem. I had taken everything that I had internalized over the years and thought, well, I'm the problem. Look at me, it's me. And to a certain extent that was true, but it was very, very basic. I needed to dig into that. I needed to dig into, as the book talks about instincts, I needed to dig into that. I needed to look at that. I needed to look at every situation. I needed to be able to be fair in my assessment using the columns in the big book, but focusing not on the first of uh, the left-hand columns, but where my responsibility lied. That was so important. And I'm gonna make a quick comment here. And this is something for those people out there that think they have no responsibility. And they have resentments of one sort or another. You all have responsibility. You all do. We all do. If we have responsibility for nothing else, we have responsibility for how we feel. We all have responsibility. And we all have responsibility for where we take those feelings. No matter how how much a victim you feel like you are, take responsibility for the feelings that you had about your victimhood. 
everywhere at some turn, there is some responsibility that we have to have. If we don't recognize that, we're not going to be free. At least that was my experience. I wouldn't be free. I had to look at every turn. And I'll make another point, too, with regard to the, with the fourth step. And I realize that we can deal with the fourth step down the line and other, and other steps when we look at our daily affairs. But the most important thing is for me to not just look at where I was wrong, but to stay in those emotions for a while. If I'm frustrated because of the actions of another person, if I'm annoyed at one thing or another, don't just, don't just for me anyway, brush it off and say, oh, I shouldn't feel that way, I'm sorry. Study it. I needed to study it. I still need to study it. I need to see where it came from. It's not psychology. It's ownership. I need to take ownership of where I'm at and how I feel. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea for me to gunny sack any feelings. The gunny sack I mean by that is to take them and put them in a sack to the side of me, but still hold on to them. And if they come up again, I have to address that. Because usually for me, I don't know about you, but most of my, my problems are, uh, are trigger points. And some people don't like the word trigger, but they're trigger points from my past. And I need to look at that. I need to be aware of it. I need to say, oh, there it is again. There it is again. And I don't want any part of it. And I need to examine how that bothered me and why. It's a story that was told to me a long time ago. This is before I went into AA, and I'll just pass it on, but I think it's a powerful story. And I think it's a part of how recovery works. Story goes like this. There was a man that walked down an alleyway, and he walked down the alleyway, and he, he, there was a hole in front of him. He didn't see the hole, and he fell into it. And then he got out. And the next day, he walked down the same alleyway. And again, this time he saw the hole, but he fell into it. And the next day he walked down the same alleyway and he saw the hole and he put his feet in it, but he walked around it. And somewhere down the line, he went down a different alleyway. So that's how I see working on um, my own resentments or own issues. I'm at a point now where I can see them, but I'm not jumping into them. I might put my toe around them from time to time, but I'm not jumping into them. And it's my goal that every day I can walk down a different alleyway, and I try to, and I do. Not perfectly, but that's what I want to do. That's the direction I want to go. That's my life's purpose. You see, what happened with me was I spent so many years screwing up my life, alienating everybody around me. And I looked up at, at a certain age and said, I can't do this anymore. I've only got a limited time left on this earth. And I've got to make the best of it every single day. I can't atone for the past, but I can create a new future. I can't, I can't apologize the past away. The only really the only thing I can do after I've made an amends is create a new future. 
Because in that new future is my hope for tomorrow. Okay. Afterwards, you know, admitting to God, and the first of all, the fourth and the fifth step to me are were almost the same, except I had a real problem admitting it to other people. I still had that barrier. I still only skirted around it and gave basic answers to my problems. And if you're doing that, try to stop it. Because, you know, the healing is really fully recognizing your problems and, and your issues and your character defects and not looking away from them, accepting them. That's hard. That's real hard for me. Accepting my character defects and, and, and deciding that this is not the way I'm living anymore. That was not an easy task. And sharing that with another person was really important. There were some things I couldn't share with my sponsor. There were some things that I had to go to other people and share with. But I, I think I've shared every single one that I can think of now. So if you're holding on to something that you say, I can't tell this to anybody, find somebody. Find somebody. Maybe it's a priest. Maybe it's some other uh, some other 12-step group. But find somebody. Find somebody that will understand that you feel comfortable with, that you can let it go, that you don't carry around that gunny sack, that bag of, of character defects on your shoulder, that you can put them aside. That's something that I think I've done and I'm still working on because obviously character defects still pop up. I'm human. As far as letting God remove my character defects, I started on that early on when I was laying in bed and said, take me dead or alive. I remember times that I would go down the same dark alleyway and fall in the holes and looking at God and saying, my higher power, whatever words you want to use, and I'm not really comfortable using the word God. It doesn't, it's a metaphor. It doesn't mean anything to me personally but it's a word that's commonly used. Uh, and, uh, and saying, you know what, I can't do this. I cannot do this. Because these ideas, these feelings keep cropping up and I can't do it. So you have to do it because I can't. And I asked him humbly, I didn't demand, but I just gave up and said, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen through your power, not mine. My power stinks. My power doesn't work. And so that was where I went on that step. And I was entirely ready to have God remove all defects of character. I think one of the, the issues I have with the 12 steps is some of them overlap each other. And for if you're like me, uh, some of them transition into the other rather simply and to the point. So it's it's if you can work on two steps at once sometimes because they're connected. Uh, it's worked for me because I couldn't. I, knowing that God could take away my character defects is a lot different than allowing Him to. I had to give up my will. That's what I had to do. I had to make Him the person who could, I could ask to humbly take care, uh, remove my shortcomings. Making a list of all the people that I had harmed was another issue entirely. I, um, in many cases, I wrote letters and I mailed them. 
In some cases, I talk to them personally. And not all of them, my son included, ever accepted my uh, uh, amends. And uh, one of the mistakes I made was I made my amends to him really early in the program. And, uh, you know, I've heard, and I know these steps are written in a certain order for a certain, for a, a real reason. And I heard people tell me not to do that. And I've seen other people do it with the regrets of what happens. Because for me personally, what had, what had to come first was a change in my life. Not the words from my mouth, but an accurate and complete attempt to change my life. And I say attempt because it's not an overnight matter. It's not an overnight matter and it continues today. But fortunately for me, it continues today in smaller ways. But unless you get to that point, that serious conviction that you would rather cut your hand off, I'm speaking for myself, because this is how I felt. I'd rather cut my hand off than, than to do that again. Now, whether or not I do it again, I'm not going to cut my hand off. But the point is, I had to have that serious conviction that I'm not going to do those things again because they hurt other people and they hurt me. And I use that, that analogy of cutting a physical part of me off because it's the closest thing that I can use to describe that feeling of revulsion about wanting to do that again. And I feel that way strongly now as I did before. And I think at that point, I could go ahead and make amends. But I had to be at that point. Because if I wasn't at that point, if I wasn't at that point, I would, I would be making something that was not complete and to a certain extent hollow. So that was, that was really, really important to me. Now, Making a direct amends, the book talks about, and the truth is, is that I tried to in most ways that I could. I didn't always do it, but I tried to. Um, now, a direct amends in this day and age, you know, I know people that have gotten on airplanes and fly halfway across the country to make a direct amends, and and that's great. And, you know, um, if you know somebody that you need to do that to, then you, then great. Um, Zoom for me is great. Uh, calling on the phone sometimes was something that was necessary for me. Making a direct amends face-to-face, -face, that was the hardest thing to do because that was the most personal. But in many cases, I did that too. But oftentimes, in my case, my family is spread out all across the country. And so, you know, when people talk about making an amends that is a, you know, uh, your life is an amends, that's true. Um, and that's where it starts. And then physically speaking, it is much easier. But it has to come from first your life changing, in my case, and then making an amends. Um, you know, I want to make one other point about amends and, uh, and character defects. And that is that looking back on my life, there's a lot of people that I don't know anymore. Names of people that I never knew, or if I did, you know, there's just a vague, I probably knew them, obviously. 
but I, I they were just a vague person in my life. But I recognized what my behaviors were. Right. I recognized the times I was angry, and most of those people I cannot contact. Most of those people that that went through my life, I can't contact those people. I don't know if they're alive or dead. I don't know where they live. I don't even know their names. I know the instances. I know my part. You know, I could write their names down individually on a piece of paper, and I probably, or write down the instances on a piece of paper, and I probably would go on infinitum. You know, it would be a long, long list. I know a lot of people, that's what they do. But the problem with that is I've already gone through those steps. So most of these people have been people that I remember from the past that I hadn't thought about in 60, 50, 40 years. So what I, my approach to this, and this is the wonderful thing about this program, is that my approach doesn't have to match anybody else's approach. And I'm certainly not an example to follow. You follow your own higher power. You follow your own approach. That's what you should do. I'm here speaking of my experience, strength, and hope, but I'm not going to begin to tell you that my way is the right way. But what I do, whenever that comes up in the past, is I stop, I'm serious, I pray about it, I tell my higher power, I make my amends to my higher power for the damage that I've done, and I put it on away because there's nothing more I can do about it. I can beat myself up for the next 20 years if I live that long. But seriously, there's nothing I can do about it. But I have to take the same attitude that I had initially, and that is I would do anything to not repeat those behaviors again as they come up. And usually they're all of the same thing, the same kind of thing, wanting my way. They're all basically self-centered and fear. Self-centeredness and the fear are the, the cornerstones of who I am and where I and where I've gone. Now I recognize I don't have much time left, so let me talk about the hope in this. And I won't go through the rest of the steps or the things that I've just touched on and alluded to. Uh, but I do want to talk about what's happening in my life right now. I I had my son call me and tell me he loved me. I went and saw my other son. Um, this summer, or last summer now, and uh, and spend time with him, spend two weeks with him, helping him. And every time I talk to him now on the phone, it's warm and caring. It's, they can't buy it. You can't buy that from anyone. My family, my sisters, they all call me, and I call them. My wife and I have a relationship that I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Do I still get frustrated with little things? Of course I do. But the difference is now, I get frustrated and I say, honey, I'm getting frustrated about this. This is frustrating. She'll look at me and say, you're getting frustrated, aren't you, Frank? She yeah, I am. And I breathe. And I keep it there. And I don't get frustrated with her. It's usually circumstances, like driving around in circles on the freeway when I want to go someplace. And, um, you know, it's it's normal. I guess, for me, to feel that way when I really am kind of destination-driven. And here she is in the seat next to me saying, we have all the time in the world, but I'm destination-driven. I want to get there. 
you know, but um, but recognizing my frustration and not living in it and letting go of it is a miracle. It's a total miracle. It can happen. It's happened to me because it would never have happened in the past. Never. I know my time is about up and, I, and I've got so many other things to share. And it's kind of odd, too, I have to say this that I thought when I started this, or I thought about this last night, I said, 35 minutes, how in the world can I fill up 35 minutes? And now the 35 minutes are over, or close to it. And honestly, I can go on further. And I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to share. So this is Imperfect Frank, sharing his imperfect life, trying to be the best person I can possibly be, one day at a time, one moment at a time. Thank you. And that was another fantastic speaker from AA Solution Seekers online group. Thank you so much for joining us as we continue to bring you great speaker one after another from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Lisa. Thanks for joining us.